The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Brought to you by your host, Lindy Kaiser of ClearanceJobs.com and Sean Bigley with security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Hi, this is Lindy Kaiser with ClearanceJobs.com. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity. Today, I am very excited to be talking with Mark Fraunfelter, the Assistant Director of the Special Security Directorate at the National Counterintelligence and Security Center in CSC. We've chatted with him a few times at Clearance Jobs. He's always a great expert and in insight into the Trusted Workforce 2.0 process. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Thank you so much. Mark, for joining us and for chatting with me today. Hey, thank you, Lindy. Uh, glad to be here and bring everybody up to speed on where we are on the Trusted Workforce 2.0 effort. Yeah, and so we've updated a lot about Trusted Workforce, meaning the key milestone for DOD with all clearance holders being under continuous vetting. I certainly know from talking with you, I mean, that's a key part of it, but that's certainly not the only major milestone or accomplishment with Trusted Workforce 2.0. So now that we've kind of met a big hurdle with continuous vetting, what major milestone should we we looking for next in terms of Trusted Workforce 2.0? First of all, we're, we're very excited about where we are on the um, Trusted Workforce 2.0 clearance reform initiative. We've, we've seen the inventory of background investigations reduced from a high of 725,000 down to a steady state of less than 200,000. We're seeing timeliness for investigative and adjudicative processes improving. And as you mentioned, we now have 4.1 million clearance holders enrolled into a continuous vetting capability. And uh, so that's 4.1 million individuals. And this represents not only DOD, but the entire national security population, those individuals with access to classified information. And, and this is a significant step forward for personnel vetting. So we're moving away from the traditional periodic reinvestigation every five to 10 years and toward a model that will surface relevant information in real time. This information will be presented to security and adjudicated professionals much faster than the traditional periodic reinvestigation allowed. A streamlined process, by doing this, it reduces the burden on individuals, flags only relevant information for the adjudicators, and investigations will always be up to date. So with the entire national security population enrolled into a continuous vetting model, we're, we're much better postured from a risk management perspective. And more importantly, it, it's better for the members of the workforce. So continuous vetting will enable us to identify concerning behaviors much earlier when they're small problems and well before they become bigger problems. And, you know, clearance holders, they're human. Clearance holders are not immune to personal issues such as financial hardships or substance dependency and mental health issues. So there's a wellness factor attached to this and then get individuals the help they need, identifying issues up front to allow the workforce to leverage the abundant uh, resources that are provided by the U.S. government. So you ask what's next and what we should be uh, looking out for. It's, it's important to point out that Trusted Workforce 2.0 initiative, it's an iterative process. Process. And having the national security population enrolled into a continuous vetting capability is, is only the beginning. 
So we will soon see that population enrolled into a more robust process that we categorize and we cleverly uh, call Trusted Workforce 1.5. And this will leverage more automated record checks, the expansion of agency-specific information, such as adjudicatively relevant insider threat information and also user activity monitoring. So as we continue down this path, one of the common themes that we hear is just how timely the vetting process is. Uh, You know, being in the security field for a number of years throughout my career, there's always someone asking, hey, what's the status of so-and-so in the process? It's taking too long. We need to get this person cleared so that they they can start working their mission-critical functions. So with the technological advances of automated record checks and such, we're looking into the potential for upfront vetting, which we label rapid vetting, especially among the tier three or medium tier population with access to classified information at the secret level. So, Lindy, imagine a vetting process which will manage risk up front in a matter of days, and this would allow individuals to enter on duty much more quickly than allowed today. Of course, this is a future topic. We're piloting this theory, but certainly there's much more to come on this risk management approach. Soon you'll see a cascade of policy documents which further define the Federal Personnel Vetting Corps Doctrine, which this was released last year or the beginning of this year, and it established the overarching framework for a single modern vetting program and set forth the principles for achieving the outcomes required of a personnel vetting program serving the needs of the U.S. government. So what will cascade from this, it'll include federal personnel vetting guidelines, performance management guidelines, investigative and adjudicative standards. And you will see this 2022 is going to be a big year to get these policies out and signed uh, at the director level. You'll also see an alignment of policy structure between security and suitability. Five tiers of the workforce collapsed into three. And then you'll see also five different vetting scenarios being defined by a unique relevant vetting process. So things like reestablishment of trust, people who leave the federal government and come back into a position of trust, uh, needing access to classified information, upgrades, transfer of trust, better known as reciprocity. These are scenarios which will have their own unique processing. I just want to point out this administration has made clearance reform a priority within the president's management agenda. The DNI and PDDI are well vested in this effort, and they address clearance reform in both of their confirmation hearings. Uh, Congress maintains a bipartisan support for Trusted Workforce 2.0, and our industrial partners obviously have a keen interest in this effort. They're concerned with the timeliness and reciprocity issues associated with the previous vetting process. So ODNI, OPM, the PAC PMO, and OMB, and DOD are working closely together to address clearance reform, and the hard work is paying off with positive results and positive feedback across the enterprise. Awesome. I don't think I need to even be on here. Just keep talking, Mark, without me. What am I here? But you're talking my love language. 2022 is going to be my year, and I'm going to have a cascade of policy documents to read. So I can't, I can't wait. But that is, you're, you're teasing to a lot of the kind of the next steps, the reciprocity, the transfer of trust, reestablishment of trust. So making those on and off ramps within government. I mean, because that's still a pain point, you know, getting people into the right position at the right time is always something that we're looking to accomplish. And so it sounds like a lot of the next iterations of reform are really going to address those. So another kind of, you know, it ties into in terms of with transfer trust, reciprocity, all of that is 
a lot of people have questions. Okay, we're not doing periodic reinvestigations anymore, but that doesn't mean that we're not going to ever do kind of something episodic to address security and suitability of the cleared workforce. I know that there's been conversations around some kind of an annual security appraisal form, which is something that the UK uses. What are maybe the pros and cons of doing some kind of a self-assessment like that? And how does that tie into what you're looking into for the next iteration of what periodic reinvestigations 2.0, I guess? That's a good question. What we do as the executive steering group looks at our trusted workforce efforts. And, and as a group, we try to look at potential gaps that may exist as we pivot away from the traditional periodic reinvestigation into a um, continuous vetting model. And you mentioned the UK. One thing that they use is this annual security appraisal that they brought our attention to. And they determined that they, they get a lot of information from this tool. So one thing that we look at and what this tool brings is as you go to automated record checks, you lose the ability to have a human voice into the individual. You know, think of, think of a dating app, right? You, everybody looks good on paper, but once you meet the individual, you can really get a sense for that individual. So similar to the annual security appraisal, we want to hear about things that a manager and a coworker can talk about based on an individual. So we made the decision to pursue this in Trusted Workforce, and we launched a pilot this year. So we had a random selection process, and we sent out a survey provided to individuals and, and their supervisor. And in this survey, questions range from your typical SF-86 questions about changes, financial changes, foreign contacts, foreign travel, illegal drug use, criminal activity, etc. But then we added questions such as, have you any cause for serious anxiety for your job? Is there any concern about a colleague? Is there any office mates who maybe are exhibiting domestic terrorist ideology uh, or extremist ideology? any contact with media, that sort of thing. And then we added a final question, which simply asked, is there anyone you wish to discuss a matter with embedded within a security or counterintelligence office? What we found was about half the employees responded yes to at least one question. And then also a percentage of managers responded yes to at least one question. And this ranged from issues such as maybe an employee experienced some stresses or personal life changes, is unable to maybe accept constructive criticism, subject who's been a very even-keeled person may start exhibiting a short temper and, and kind of a hostile environment. So these are things you don't get from automated record checks. And the other thing we're concerned with is doing something like this. What kind of burden would this be on the workforce? And, and the Overwhelming feedback was relatively positive. The majority of the employees reported that this survey took about 15 minutes to complete. And one comment in particular remarked that it was much better to do this each year than fill out an SF-86 form that people have to do every five years for the top secret uh, population. Amen. So some of those, and those of you who filled it out know what I'm talking about. Um, so this is the feedback that we were getting we believe that based on our, our pilots, that one year is the correct cadence. It establishes a baseline. Like I explained, that someone may be acting out of the ordinary or um, may show something different from their normal baseline. 
but managers provided this unique information, which was not previously collected or analyzed. And also the security and CI contact was very helpful to the employees. So I found that interesting that a lot of people in the workforce don't know who to go talk to about issues that are security or or CI related. So the ASA, the annual security appraisal, can actually act as an organizational health check, can provide targeted early intervention resources and training. So relatively positive, but it's something we're looking into. Uh, We call it the secret sauce for Trusted Workforce 2.0, that extra added feedback that we can get. Related to that, I wish to mention an an important aspect of the Trusted Workforce 2.0 effort, and we believe it's very important to consider human behavior as we go down this path. You know, one thing, going back to um, 9-11, and the workforce witnessed a lot of changes to the physical security and force protection of facilities, structures were enhanced, and the workforce looked at that and said, look at what the government's doing for us to protect us. And then you take any of these espionage or or high profile uh, spy cases, if you will, you know, Snowden and and Robert Hansen and Aldra James. And what resulted from that was a lot of things being levied on the workforce that they had to report, uh, forms they had to fill out. And the workforce responded by saying, look, look what you're doing, not for us, but to us. We continually message our efforts across the enterprise and and socialize these efforts directly to individuals within the workforce. Buy-in is very important to us, and we have to continue to gain trust in the process from the workforce. And as we pivot away from the traditional periodic reinvestigation to continuous vetting, the feedback we're getting from security directors continues to be positive. And as we baseline the impact of the wellness factor I mentioned earlier and continue to show how the reform effort is reflective of a trust environment, I believe the overall workforce will continually see the benefits of our initiative. You bring up a great point there because I think so much of the focus being on continuous vetting, which is obviously huge and is key, but really what Trusted Workforce 2.0 is about is that human behavior element. So continuous vetting is one part of that. But if you look holistically at all the reforms you're trying to do, it's really making a healthier, more proactive security component across the personnel security and industrial security mission, because industrial security is certainly key to what we're doing from a security perspective as well. And humans are at the heart of both of those and and how we can make our workforce better. What we're taking in from either continuous vetting or some kind of an annual security appraisal, how can we use that to make the workforce healthier? And I think, I mean, it's been a rough couple of years for any worker anywhere So to have actionable intelligence on some of those stressors to your workforce and be able to, as you mentioned, take steps to make sure that people have the resources and the assets that they need and that you're helping. It is in the government's best interest to have a good quality workforce. So trusted workforce is not just all these numbers, buckets, accomplishments, but it is, like you said, this comprehensive human behavior focused reform effort. That is a great point. I mean, part of the, um, when someone occupies a national security position, part of the challenge is obviously you want to measure that person's trust, integrity, and their character to allow them access to classified information. And part of that, though, you know, security, traditionally, maybe there's this perception of the big bad government looking into someone's ability to occupy that position. But but as you mentioned, there is a wellness factor there, too. And we need to ensure the characteristics of a trusted person. You also make sure that they're getting the resources that they need 
because like I say, clearance holders, they're human and, and they go through uh, personal events as well. And we want to be able to leverage those resources. Yeah. So really trusted workforce, really about all about making a holistic, healthy and trustworthy workforce altogether. Exactly. Continuous vetting may be a key part of Trusted Workforce 2.0, but that doesn't mean self-reporting requirements go away. Next up, Sean Bigley of Bigley Ranish joins me to talk about self-reporting requirements for security clearance holders. Attorney advertisement, not a guarantee or warranty of results. I'm attorney Sean Bigley. The denial or revocation of your security clearance is a devastating blow but effective legal representation can make a difference. Contact my team at Bigley Ranish LLP for a free case evaluation. Find us online at biglylaw.com. Federal security clearances are all we do. Need to hire security clear professionals? Reach the largest collection of cleared candidates with clearancejobs.com. Clear professionals trust the privacy and security of Clearance Jobs Career Network, along with federal agencies and more than a thousand intelligence and defense contractors. Features like IntelliSearch, Workflow, and Meetings make it easy to build relationships, pipeline, and automate the recruiting process while slashing time to hire. Get more information and learn how you can connect with top cleared candidates at clearancejobs.com. Welcome back to Security Clearance Insecurity. I'm your co-host, attorney Sean Bigley, and we're back with clearancejobs.com's Lindy Kaiser. We're talking this segment about self-reporting and the obligations that security clearance holders have to notify the government when certain issues arise in their personal or professional lives. You know, Lindy, this is something that I think has caused a lot of confusion for a lot of folks over the years. I know that this document, CAD 3, Security Executive Agent 3, which governs the issue, is something that most security clearance holders, frankly, haven't even heard of. What are some of the issues that you're seeing on the clearancejobs.com discussion boards? And what's kind of the general consensus here among security clearance holders as to the current state of things? It never ceases to amaze me how when I'm talking to the average security clearance holder, they have no idea that they have self-reporting requirements. And I don't know why it surprises me because when I had a security clearance as a young U.S. Army civilian, I had no clue that there were self-reporting requirements. I actually didn't know anything about the security clearance I was given. So I think there's an education piece. And I think we have the disconnect here too now that we have, you know, DOD has announced it's 100% enrollment into continuous vetting. So again, if your DOD makes up just the largest segment of the cleared population, a lot of people who get those clearances early on in their career like I did and probably don't have a breadth of career experience under their belt. So they don't realize, hey, I'm now being continuous continuously vetted by the government, that means I don't have to report these things because the government's already going to find them out, right? But again, like you said, the directive actually layers on more reporting requirements, even reporting on coworkers. So I think there's an education piece there that, you know, hopefully this episode will get out to folks saying, hey, if you have a security clearance, even if you're under continuous vetting, you need to, there are reportable, you know, issues, foreign travel, foreign contacts, the financial issues, which are so prevalent. If you're a security clearance holder, you still need to report those things, even if, and especially because you're under this continuous vetting program, because now, as you've talked about before, people don't have the timeline between their periodic reinvestigation to mitigate issues. The government's going to find out about it. Like they just are. Financial issues, criminal issues, it behooves you to report those. 
And why do you think maybe applicants, I think there's some concern, I think almost from an employment standpoint, hey, I don't want to report this DUI. Why is that a terrible idea not to report it? Yeah, well, I mean, you raise a lot of interesting points there. So I mean, to your question, there's a couple parts to this. I mean, first of all, because the government is going to find out about it, and because you're going to have to voluntarily report it anyway, at some point, it really behooves folks to get out in front of it and not make it look like, you know, you're trying to hide something because that's really the worst thing that you can do is layer on top of something like a DUI or a bankruptcy, the appearance or the impression that you're trying to hide it. It does raise some issues and we've talked about this before, but you know, when you're self-reporting something contemporaneously like an arrest, you really have to be cautious because it's one thing to report the factual details of, you know, I was arrested on such and such date at such and such time for such and such charge. But it's another thing to sort of editorialize and provide commentary in your defense and, and all of those sorts of things. Most criminal defense attorneys are going to advise against that, at least while the case is open. You have to be very careful and really seek out good advice if you're self-reporting a criminal issue. Anything else is less of a concern with regard to potentially shooting yourself in the foot some other way, but it is still certainly reportable um, if it falls within the, the confines of CAD 3 And there's a whole list there of very specific issues that folks can go and take a look at and see, does this qualify? Does my issue qualify? This happened to me. Do I self-report it? I mean, we get calls like this all the time. And I always tell folks, go and look at CAD 3 read it. It's very clear. It'll tell you exactly whether or not something is reportable. And if you have any questions, get some good legal advice. That is really the most important thing. Now, as far as this other issue here of ratting out coworkers, um, and I hate to use that term, but believe it or not, there is a component in CAD 3 that requires that as well. And one of the open questions that's come up and hasn't really been addressed is what are the repercussions, if any, if the government finds out that you had information that was reportable about a colleague and didn't actually report it. So we haven't yet seen a case that someone has gotten in trouble for that, but it is conceivable that, you know, if you know your colleague is doing something really, really dicey and it's reportable under CAD 3 and you just keep your mouth shut that, you know, you could have a target on your back as well. So a lot of things to unpack here. um, But the first step, I think, for everybody who isn't familiar with CAD 3 is go and read it. It's been around for several years. It applies to all security clearance holders. And yeah, as you said, I mean, there are a significant number of folks walking around with clearances who have no idea what their self-reporting obligations actually are. Or that they have them at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's, it's just like a lot of these policies is just being aware, reading the policy and knowing what it says and what it doesn't say is certainly usually helpful. And yeah, the coworker piece, I think kind of the devil is in the details though, because I think they they release this guidance and there, there's a lot that's explicitly stated and then there's a lot that's not explicitly stated. So like even who you report things to, we've gotten a ton of questions about that. I think it says agency head or, and then the guidance comes, well, if you're a DOD contractor, fairly far down the funnel, it's hard for you to know who that person is who you're supposed to be reporting to. I know you've written on our site about kind of 
one option, I don't know if you still consider it an option, reporting things directly to the DOD CAF in that instance. But do you have any advice on procedures for self-reporting is the best step just to go directly to your FSO or security officer? And I find even sometimes in those cases, though, in my experience, these new policies come out. Sometimes even the security officers, again, depending on how far down the funnel they are, they're like not entirely sure who in the agency they should be reporting this information to. Yeah. I mean, it is actually very surprising how many security officers are unaware of what to do with this sort of information. And if that's the case, you know, what I tell folks is you aren't necessarily as the security clearance holder required to do your security manager's job for them. Hopefully they have the training and the basics that they need to be able to know what to do. But if they don't, as long as you have met your obligation of reporting to them, then you should be covered. Now, the issue there is proving that you actually did that. So if you are in a situation where you have to self-report something, I, I strongly recommend doing it in writing, even just something as basic as an email, but you've got to keep a record of that paper trail in a safe place so that if any questions arise in the future, you've got you know some proof there. Sort of from a, a bigger picture perspective here, as you said, uh, there have been uh, questions in the past about whether there are other ways to self-report, uh, whether you can go directly to DOD CAF. There's nothing explicitly that prohibits that. And we have had some situations where for various strategic reasons, folks have done that. There are pros and cons uh, to doing that approach. And so you know, if you are in a situation where you're needing to self-report something, it's always best to seek out some good qualified advice prior to doing it. There are some real potential repercussions to these sorts of things. So, you know, making sure that you're doing it the right way is really important. And like you said, the paper trail is key. Mm-hmm. So don't walk in the office. Hey, Bob, I got a DUI Saturday. Sorry. I mean, I think if it's a, if it's a reportable offense, you, you definitely want to document, mm-hmm. read what the requirements are first, make sure it is a reportable offense. Don't overshare information. I mean, because that's we always have the two sides of this, the people who are not going to self-report anything because they're, you know, a young 20-year-old ignorant person like myself and don't know they have reporting requirements or on the other side of it, they are willfully trying to prevent the government from finding out that information. But again, that's why TV is here and that can't happen. Yeah. And, and I mean, there, there are multiple layers to this onion. Uh, for example, if you are self-reporting certain drug issues, drug involvement, uh, you may be telling your employer that you violated their policy against drug use and and that could subject you to termination. So, you know, you have to really be cautious in the way that you do this. There are, you know, certainly requirements as to self-reporting, but then sometimes there are bigger issues here. For example, as I mentioned earlier, the risk of potentially waiving rights that you may have available in a criminal case. So there are some situations where you know, we get folks who are very, very anxious and concerned about wanting to comply with the policies that govern their security clearance. And that's fantastic. But they have to sort of put it in perspective and sort of order of importance here. And most people would say, I think, staying out of jail, for example, is number one priority, keeping their job or their clearance would be second. So you have to sort of look at the big picture before you take any action. And if there's something that is going to cause a ripple effect in another area of your life that is not something that you're willing to risk or or something that you want to do, 
that may be a consideration to think about before you run and talk to your employer about something that's that's self-reportable. Good advice. As always, Sean, thank you so much. You got it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity. Please note, the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. Have a question about security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic for security clearance insecurity? Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? Drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning in to Security Clearance Insecurity with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley of security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have, but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.